Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Dean Lockhart, convener of the Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee at the Scottish Parliament, and I'm speaking uh, today uh, from my office at Holyrood. The Net Zero Committee has just heard evidence from experts in the immediate aftermath of COP26, in particular, hearing about the outcomes and implications for Scotland's climate change policies arising from the two-week conference in Glasgow. And I've invited two of our guest witnesses from today's session back to talk about some of the outcomes of COP26 and the implications for the Scottish Parliament. So I'm joined via video call by Professor Dave Ray, Executive Director of the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute, and Jess Pepper, Founding Director of the Climate Cafe. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for rejoining me to discuss the uh, significant outcomes of COP26. And let me start with perhaps an easy question. Will the agreements reached at COP26 be enough to keep 1.5 alive? And if not, what needs to happen next? And Dave, maybe I could um, put that to yeah, that question to you first. Um, so the short answer is no to that question. So keeping 1.5 alive, in terms of the physics of climate, we, I guess we've still got a chance, but the agreements at Glasgow aren't enough to deliver on that 1.5. So. So this year ahead um, is, is going to be crucial in terms of not just upping the ambition, but actually carrying through the commitments that have already been made. So that, that 1.5 target, it's, it's, it's crucial because we know if we go above that in terms of global average temperature, the impacts just absolutely spiral upwards in a, in a negative way. Um, but the next Conference of the Parties, the next COP27, will be in Egypt. That will represent a continent which is already being ravaged by climate change, 1.5 will be front and centre there. But really, the, the time is nearly out. Um, and so you could say, I know it's been said 1.5 is alive, but it's all also been said it really is on life support. And, and that would be a fair summation of where we're at. And David, it seems to me that the, the COP process, whereas previously there were major COP meetings and conferences once every three, four or five years, it almost seems now that hopefully each annual COP meeting will have increasing significance as temperature is monitored and as science develops and also as more pressure is put on countries to deliver on their individual NDCs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, so we've had COPs every year apart from last year because of the pandemic um, for the last 26 years. And I think what we've seen since Paris is more I guess more recognition of the scientific basis, more recognition of the urgency. And one of the key things to come out of Glasgow was that we can't wait another five years. So under the Paris Agreement, the idea is um, every five years, nations increase their commitments uh, in terms of what they're doing. And in theory, that adds up to um, meeting the Paris climate goals. And it's acutely apparent that um, waiting another five years uh, would be way too long. So at least we've got. Um, a request through um, the Glasgow COP for all nations to increase their ambition again in advance of the Egypt COP uh, at the end of next year. Um, whether we'll see that every year from then on, we probably need it, actually, if we're going to get anywhere near 1.5. Um, but uh, it remains to be seen how many countries will actually do that. It's not a not something that's legally enforceable. It's something that they um, will have to choose to do. Um, and for some nations, that's quite a big undertaking because they, they, they're limited in their capacity uh, domestically even to come up with 
new commitments. So um, it's good to see it in there, and certainly it reflects that the true urgency uh, that we were dealing with. And Jess, we we saw significant level of engagement from delegates from across the world, obviously, and uh, it's dominated, you know, part of the public policy dialogue for the months ahead of COP, and 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 continues to do so. But what's your sense of, you know, whether it caught the public's imagination? Did you do you think there was a level of, you know, community engagement? Do you think the COP has reached out there to to you know individuals who recognise the significance of this? Yeah, I'm not sure that COP has reached out, but people are pushing on COP now in a way that they never have before. Um, So we're now very well aware that while there were some significant outcomes from COP26, that the pace and the scale and the impact on reducing our emission is nowhere near where it needs to be to have a chance of staying um, below 1.5 degree increase, but also to meet the needs of those who are being most impacted upon already. Um, and people are passionate about that and want to um, accelerate the process and the progress that we all need to be making, and that's abundantly clear. Um, we are hearing now much more so than we ever have before those voices of those who previously have been underrepresented. You know, younger voices, voices of Indigenous peoples, finally being heard inside the room as well as loudly supported and heard outside the building as well. Um, the voices of you know women and girls. Um, it was great to see that there was a commitment in Glasgow to um, a declaration um, about the role of women and girls as well. So yeah, definitely um, hearing amplification in Glasgow itself, but also interestingly connecting with Glasgow but in communities across Scotland and around the world, um, really pushing. In a way, um, now we are able to be online a bit more connected, really hearing that um, virtually as well as in person. But that, that's good to hear because uh, there's a lot of discussion now about okay, what what do the outcomes of COP26 mean for you know policy in Scotland? What 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 does it mean in terms of practical uh, impact we, we we might see in the months and years ahead? Uh, in Scotland, as you know, we've set ourselves very challenging. Uh, interim targets of reducing emissions by 75 per cent by 2030 and the transition to net zero by 2045. Uh, Dave, you know, what, what do you think the main obstacles will be in, in reaching just, for example, the, the 2030 target to begin with? And what, you know, if people are listening to this podcast are thinking, well, what do these climate change targets mean for me? What, what should in, individuals expect in terms of potential changes to their, you know, everyday lives or their homes, how they heat their homes, or how how they they travel around. What 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 can we expect? Yeah, so the I mean the biggest obstacle to our twenty thirty target, which is is very ambitious, particularly because of a I guess a slightly geeky thing in terms of how we we, we report our emissions. Like all nations, we include upland peat in in those in that emissions reporting now. So that makes it even harder for Scotland because we've got a lot of peatland that. Um, currently is a source of carbon and needs to be restored. So the biggest challenges, um, I think, uh, are ones we're kind of used to, which is uh, how do we keep people warm in winters? We're going into winter now with a a building stock across Scotland, which is pretty um, energy inefficient on average um, and is like, you know, commonly heated by fossil fuels, whether that's gas or oil. 
um, in some cases, uh, coal and peat, but mainly gas and oil. Um, how do we actually decarbonize that in what is a really short time frame? Um, and that links to your question about what can people expect? Um, because we need to see about a million households, um, you know, essentially have low or zero carbon heating by the end of this decade. That's going to mean disruption for us. You know, uh, it means a lot of retrofit. It means, um, that those issues about cost need to be dealt with because it's not going to be cheap. Um, it might pay itself back, um, over the, in terms of running costs, but it's that upfront cost that needs to be met. And it really brings into issues of, I guess, energy security and energy poverty that we cannot afford that rapid change to actually push people in to energy poverty or people, you know, suffering from the effects of, of cold in the winter because they can't afford to heat their houses. And that's just one example. I guess the biggest challenge we've got is the speed. We haven't got much time. We've got an ambitious target um, by 2030, and it's quite right to have an ambitious target. Um, but it is going to be the whole of society and the whole economy. So I guess the, the biggest challenge is it not being a selection of, of kind of niche successes. So say we decarbonize all of transport, which would be a huge victory for Scotland. Um, and we go to electric vehicles and mass transit systems, uh, you know, things like buses and trains. If we only achieve where we need to get to in transport, we've still failed. So that's the challenge is we need to do this across land use and agriculture, across waste, across industry, across every sector. And so all of those sectors obviously interact with our lifestyles. So it all it all comes back to how much willing the, willingness there is in Scotland for that change, for all of us as individuals and communities and how the system allows us to do it. And I would end with a, a real positive note on that latter one, is in Scotland, um, we've probably got some of the most climate aware people in the world as a population. We kind of get this, obviously in the land use and agriculture sector, we're seeing climate change year in, year out. Um, we've got that real will from the, from the climate assembly, from interaction through um, the amazing work Jess and others do across Scotland. So we are we are in a position to do this. And although COP26 has finished, the scrutiny from the rest of the world is still going to be on Scotland because at COP and um, before and after, the world is looking to us to see, OK, what mistakes is Scotland going to make and what successes are they going to report? And so... Um, yeah, it's it's a hugely challenging decade ahead. But if we can't do it, then pretty much pretty much no one can. Well, you, you certainly said the, uh, the 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 challenges, uh, Dave. Uh, my understanding is Scotland's got some of the oldest housing stock in the world. You know, like just along from the Parliament, you know, is is the bottom of the Royal Mile. And as you well know, going up the Royal Mile, you 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 soon encounter buildings that date back from the 16th century and. Um, you know, a mile to the north, we've got the so-called New Town, which is only 200 years old uh, by, by, by comparison. So there's that, that challenge of retrofitting is going to be a massive one. And, and just this concept of public awareness, um, I mean, do you think the, the Scottish government and the UK government have done enough to, to set the scene to, you know, explain in some detail, you know, what the changes we might see over the next three to five years? Or is that still a piece of work that, that needs to be accelerated? Yeah, I think, you know, Scotland has this ambition and we're a creative and innovative nation. Um, I think the key thing is that we um, obviously we need to make the pace um, and scale of progress that we need to 
do that we need to make, but we also need to take people with us and make sure it's fair for everybody. So um, the challenge is to set out what the plan is, you know, the timetable with that plan and how that will be resorted, how those who need to shift will be supported to make a shift. Um, we all need to shift in some ways, but for there'll be some sectors where the shift is bigger than others and um, it all needs to be um, done in a fair and sustainable way. Um, so I think there's always people are always keen to know more. They want to know what does this look like? What's my role within this? How do I contribute? What is, you know, how are the other responsibilities being delivered? Um, and I think, you know, there's been talk about having a route map, not unlike that of um, the route map that we had through COVID, where people can visualise where we are and where we need to be and how we all pitch in to play our roles there, but also seeing where others are pulling um, on, you know, where their roles and responsibilities lie and where we're making progress. One thing we hear from communities is that they'd like to hear regular updates on progress. So maybe not leaving it a year to update on whether we're making progress on something, but hearing more frequently as to how progress is going in particular areas. So we know in Scotland, for example, that we've you know done quite well in some areas, but we've done really poorly in others. Um, and the glaring example is transport. Lots of people would like to shift, um, make that meaningful shift. And it's a real climate action to choose to leave the car behind and shift to more active travel and sustainable travel. Um, and like many of these shifts, actually, it delivers lots of public benefits like improved public health and tackles inequalities and a fairer system. Um, but until the finance shifts, then that doesn't become meaningful. Um, so at the moment, we talk in Scotland about having an active and sustainable transport hierarchy so that we are able to choose to walk and cycle and wheel and then choose the bus and the train. And last of all, be thinking about single use car. Um, but actually, at the moment, our finance is top heavy to the last choice in that pyramid rather than the top choices in that pyramid. And in other places, um, for example, in Luxembourg, they've shifted that. They've made the political commitment to shift the spend and actually invest in the stuff that people are saying that they want to do, walking and cycling and wheeling and um, and then to um, quality public transport. And as you say, in Scotland, we could be decarbonising that as well, which is a fantastic opportunity to be running off Scottish clean electricity. Um, but that really is going to take political commitment across the board. And it's upon all of us to create the space for that to happen um, as a nation. But when we do, wow, the outcomes could be really fantastic in many ways. Yeah, I think I think you raise a lot of issues there, Jess. And some of them, in fact, many of them are for local government. Uh, you mentioned transport policy. You know, we've just spoken about retrofitting uh, housing. Um, and again, th th this will uh, impose quite a, a lot of responsibility on local government to actually you know, deliver on the ground. And one of the common themes I heard during COP26, not, not just in relation to Scotland, but across the world, is, is the limited bandwidth governments and local governments are facing. You know, they're still dealing with the fallout of the, the COVID pandemic, uh, the health response, the economic response to that. So. Um, you, you know, Dave, do you just share that concern about, you know, is there enough bandwidth at national government level and in particular local government level to do everything that is being asked? I think I absolutely share that concern because we know there isn't. I mean, we, we, we know that if you look across Scotland and, and like you say, it, at COP, this was a key area of focus was, was about how you implement 
these national policies and targets. And that comes down to local government, to public bodies, to communities, cities and towns. Um, and if we look across Scotland, it's a real varied picture. We've got some areas where we can point to real success and good capacity um, and other areas where that isn't the case. And actually, these um, additional duties and additional pressures to deliver on all the, you know, net zero is whole economy, whole society. And when you when you go down to the, the, the local level, that's a lot of different things you've got to be thinking about. So to get this right in Scotland, it does mean a comprehensive approach. It needs to be universal in terms of that capacity for every local authority, every public body, every city and town to be able to take the action. And like Jess was saying, part of that is really um, making sure that the the empowerment isn't just about, yeah, go and do this, but actually that the financial flows are there, that the frameworks are there, the route maps are there. Like you say, Jess, we need a route map, which is not just like we have for the climate change plan. It's kind of um, iterations of um, updates and, and particular milestones. But we need that for every community, every local authority so that you can you can actually see how that then aggregates to where we get to in Scotland. So. For me, I know your committee, Dean, is going to focus on local government um, as part of your inquiry. And I think that's a really very timely and very important focus because they are the ones who are going to help unlock that huge potential we have in Scotland for the net zero transition. Uh, absolutely. And uh, thank you for the plugging uh, the upcoming inquiry of uh, the committee, Dave. That's uh, very useful. And we, 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 we're looking at, uh, you know, additional support required at the local government level. How about, you know, if we look at the, say, Scottish Parliament and, and what, what you think, not just the Scottish Parliament, but, but you know, parliaments across the UK need to do differently to, to uh, meet the transition to net zero, to hold governments to account in, in areas which are whole of government, you know, responsibilities. Um, any, any words of wisdom in terms of what you think Parliament should be doing differently? Jess, you're nodding your head. You clearly have some ideas about what we should be doing differently. I think, and this is something, you know, we hear people talk about over um, some time, that um, climate change, nature emergency, um, sustainable development, these things need to be mainstreamed in Parliament um, so that the scrutiny is across the board. Um, almost to the point that perhaps it's a standing committee that needs to be looking at auditing um, progress in these areas the whole way through, because obviously it needs to be um, audited um, in terms of transport and, um, but also across health and education and qualities. The impacts really fall disproportionately um, in terms of climate impacts on people here in Scotland as well as around the world. So there are different ways to achieve that. Achieving a really high level of climate literacy across the Scottish Parliament could really show leadership. So that in every committee, the the members in that committee and the clerking team supporting that committee are, you know, thinking through a climate lens as well as a financial lens and an equalities lens and a health and wellbeing lens about what this all means for um for us as a nation and bringing that scrutiny particularly to the heart of things. I think. Um, in one of the panels, it was really clearly articulated that actually at the heart of all of this is where public spend goes. And we've kind of touched on that a couple of times and that shift that's needed from the old story to the new story that we need to be equipped with in order to really be talking about a just transition and um, a green recovery and um, ensuring that we get to where we need to be in time 
that needs an urgent lens on it, um, right from the public, every bit of public spends need, needs to be audited to check whether it's going in the right direction or whether it's exacerbating the problem. And that's something which would quickly flush out what, what the issues are in transport, for example, which um, I hope that, you know, in your inquiry, that may be unpacked a little. Why have we made so little progress in decades in transport? We've barely reduced emissions, yet in other areas we've done well. So bringing that right to the heart of the parliament and finding the tools and mechanisms. And I think we need to be creative as a nation as to how we um, we use others to support the parliament in that work. There's obviously academia, which I'm sure Dave could talk to more. Um, but Audit Scotland, for example, may have a role there as well. I know they indicated that they were keen to have a role there. And I noticed that in Wales, um, Audit Wales, um, it, during COP, immediately contacted some of the organisations that they audit um, in order to understand, um, urgently wrote to them to find out what they were doing on climate to ensure that we're on track to deliver. And so we need to bring the urgency to all of these conversations across the parliament, but also um, across the nation that is going to take us all. And we should all be working to support each other in achieving real progress. And Dave, you were uh, nodding along there. I, I, I take it that uh, you agree with those sentiments? Yeah, totally. I, mean, I, I kind of think your committee has the hardest job in parliament Dean, because you know your net zero energy and transport, and the net zero bit—that's that's basically everything, in my view. Because net zero means every part of the economy, every part of Scotland is is touched by it. So, so that that presents a capacity issue for you and all your, all of your colleagues within that committee. I guess for Parliament as a whole, like Jess says, the key to this is for all of the committees to have the capacity to properly scrutinise across the piece in terms of um, climate action, uh, addressing the nature crisis as well, as Jess mentioned. Part of that is is between all of you identifying where there are gaps, where there are overlaps, where there are you know uh, issues in terms of capacity. There's a lot of responsibility for you. I think there's a lot of responsibility for us as academia, for, for Jess and others across Scotland to support you in this. Um, and I think, you know, part of our role in academia is good in terms of what we do feeding into new technology, into IPCC, into um, giving evidence to your committees when you want it. But I think we we need to be proactive as well uh, because we have great universities, great colleges, um, research institutions in Scotland, which are at the front cutting edge of a lot of this stuff, understanding, for instance, what we do about peatland restoration. How do you do that? How do you attract finance into it by making it robust? That expertise is here in Scotland, uh, and, and I could say the same about pretty much every element of climate action. So we we have responsibility to help the parliament. Uh, so do, do call on us um, personally, but also as, as a community, because it's part of our job um, to, to help you deliver the net zero transition sustainably. That, that's, uh, I think, an excellent point where we can wrap things up. And, and you, Dave, you mentioned then, Jess, as well, the, the level of support. One of the, the genuine observations I had very early uh, on in joining the, the committee was that level of support. Now, you know, people making themselves available, the expertise available, and it, it just helps the committee tremendously. So I really appreciate your ongoing support. I appreciate you joining this podcast after being in the formal committee session. I'm sure... We'll have plenty more to discuss in the, the weeks and months ahead as the national targets agreed at COP26 are translated into government action, something the committee will obviously be keeping a very close eye on. So thanks again to Professor Dave Ray 
and to Jess Pepper, and also many thanks to all of you who were able to join the podcast. Thank you.